this morning. I hope it's not too intimidating. Trinitarian Orthodoxy. Whew. Again, hopefully that won't be too intimidating. Before we get into that, though, um, let me... Um, I know, he's excited. I'm telling you, man, he's my, he's my best... Got that Pentecostal spirit. What, what is it? Trucks? What's in the book? Trains? Trucks? Farm. Oh, farm. He's excited about the farm. All right. Um, before we get into the Trinitarian Orthodoxy, which again is, is kind of a handful. Good morning, Isan. How are we feeling? Good. Good? Um, before we get into that, just, just a, quick, a quick kind of, I guess, review or, or recap of where we've been in this series on the Trinity you know, we started uh, just kind of these three images. I, th- I think would be the best images to kind of to kind of keep us in mind as we move through this series on the Trinity. You know, love as we started off the dynamic of the universe, the frequency of the universe, um, what sustains the universe. We use that phrase that we will never understand that God is love until we understand that God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit existing together. And then the invitation to that relationship of love, the, the image from Andre Rublev based on Genesis 18, again, that kind of open seat at the table that we are invited into that fellowship, into that conversation, um, that, that blessed meal, that there's that open seat at that table. And then last week, we talked about this kind of idea of portrait mode. We used the Great Commission when Jesus says, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We use this idea of portrait mode, that the emphasis is discipleship, right? But what's in the background, we wanted to kind of restore the background. And what's in the background is, um, is the Trinity. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And we had all those great portrait mode uh, pictures that we got to look at last week, or two weeks ago, I guess that would have been. Um, so let me let me kind of start with with this portrait mode because I was I was thinking about this a little bit more this week and I, I have another kind of kind of like segue from the sermon two weeks ago to this week and, and what we'll talk then further on about. But let me go back to this picture of my daughter Alice when, when we were on vacation this summer. When I initially thought about this series, I thought that I would spend the majority of the time. And I think, Rob, you said this. You, at one point, like, man, I'm really excited to learn about the Trinity, to understand the Trinity. I thought that I would spend more time kind of explaining it, the details of it, the way that it functioned, um, the way that it works, how the relationships are, all those sorts of things. Um, but what I've realized as I've kind of continued to read and study and learn about the Trinity and share this with you guys is that um, – explaining the Trinity to perfectly understand that doctrine of the Trinity would be equivalent to looking at this photo and saying that I need to know the exact species of tree that's in the background. I need to understand the depth of the water that is right there. I need to know the exact type of cloud that is in the sky, right? To, to be, to, you know, again... While we can understand that in the background, there's trees and there's water and there's uh, clouds and she's squinting so the sun must be out and it's summer. We don't need to, so to speak, be overly precise with the background to understand how it applies to the photo, right? So maybe what I've been learning as I've been studying this series and I've been bringing this series to us is again, I wanna say this, that we are establishing the Trinity 
as the background, right? The context in which everything else, and, you know, I just put the word gospel, but sin, forgiveness, heaven, redemption, love, books of the Bible, um, the way Jesus, salvation, all those sorts of things, is emphasized. The Trinity becomes the context from which we are able to interpret and understand our spirituality, our Christianity, right? Again, this idea that the entire Bible, the entire biblical narrative, all that we're doing, and I'll just put these lines, is in essence, it's triple underlined, right? It's underlined by the Father and by the Son and by the Spirit, right? And this is one of the challenges, one of the aspirations of this series is really kind of to establish. Again, we don't need, going back to this picture, I, I don't, I thought that I would spend more time, so to speak, defining everything in the background. What I've realized is that as I under, as we under, understand, understand, somebody's trying to steal it. Got some visitors. That is it's probably one of the best things that's happened. <laughs> so, I, again, I don't even know where I was. It's something about the trees and water and all that stuff. Right? I thought that I would spend like just time defining all that stuff in the background. What I'm learning and what I'm understanding is, yes, I need to know that those things are back there. I don't need to be overly precise about those things to really have that um, help me understand my spirituality, my Christianity, those sorts of things. Um, This is, again, the triple underline. So what I want to talk about this morning is thinking through the Trinity, right? Again, that's orthodoxy, right thinking. Um, And then I want to talk next week, or in two weeks, about the actions of, like, again, how how would we act if things are triple underlined in our lives? How do we act in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? How do we pray? How would we read the Bible? How would we conduct ourselves um, in life, do different things? Uh, there's Paul has some great verses on the Trinity, and then in December we'll trace, we'll spend a week tracing the Father, we'll spend a week tracing the Son, and then we'll spend a week tracing the Spirit throughout the Bible. So that's just kind of, and I think that'll be about the end of of our of our kind of journey into the Trinity. Um, so, still with me so far? A couple of little distractions, but um, I think we'll we'll be good. Um, I want to spend this morning again this this kind of Trinitarian orthodoxy, to to think rightly, to think accurately with the Trinity as our background, as our context, right? This is what we want to spend a little bit of time doing this morning. I I meant to bring the book, but the book that I've been reading, one of the books that I've been reading is by a guy named Fred Sanders. It's called The Deep Things of God, How the Trinity Changes Everything. Some of the book might have been a little bit too deep of the things of God, but there's been some really good stuff that, that Mr. Sanders has is, is kind of illuminated. He has a little section in his book on Trinitarian thinking, the way that we think in terms of the Trinity. And um, he uses this concept. What I want to do this morning is I'm going to use three words. I want us to think uh, about, the, about salvation in terms of the Trinity. I want us then to think about sin in terms of the Trinity. And because us pastors think with alliterations, we'll then think about um, uh, suffering in terms of the Trinity as well, too. So just kind of getting our mind kind of prepped to think about the Trinity in these sorts of ways. So let's think about salvation for a second. Um, Think back to the moment 
when you said yes to Jesus, right? Um, now, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to look around. Did anybody have like that kind of radical, not radical, but like pretty like, hey, this was, this was the day I decided, this was the moment, this was, Brian, you did? I did. When was that? You are? Okay. Yeah. It was kind of like an altar call situation. I remember going there too, like going to the camp initially and being like, yeah, these people are weird. <laughs> I'm not really into this. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, at the end of that camp. Yeah. Because I just know, I didn't know anything about Jesus until then. Were you, I thought your folks were kind of Christians the whole time or no? Oh, wow. Okay. So you kind of had, so I think for, for most of us, we could kind of maybe be put in two camps. One would be like a Brian camp where like, this is the kind of moment of when I really gave my life to the Lord of when I really decided. And then for a, another side of that would be um, C.S. Lewis uses this great analogy of becoming awake, right? Is that what he kind of uses or, or, you don't know that one. I think he, he's this analogy of, of salvation as like becoming awake. You're, you're waking up, right? So it's more of a, a process. So there's like a moment and there's more of a process. But think about that, that kind of time period when you said yes, whether it was at youth camp. Um, I grew up with Teen Challenge folks around me. So those guys were kind of, their life was going straight to the gutter. They encountered Jesus radically. They did a 180. They repented. They went the complete other way, um, really turned their lives around for the Lord. Again, for me, it was from childhood. You guys know my dad's a pastor, so I don't kind of remember a point in which I wasn't a, a Jesus follower. Sure, there's kind of been some little things along the way, but for the most part, followed Jesus from my childhood. Um, maybe, again, C.S. Lewis awakening. But at some point, right, and we'll... I need something to... Okay. Close your eyes for a second. So this jacket was left over from the chili cook-off, and I've tried to reach out to find out whose it is, and sometimes you just got to deal with things like that. Okay. Okay, so this is you. At some point, you make the decision in your life to, um, to say yes to Jesus, right? And you're giving your life to Jesus, and again, whether this is a moment whether this is the time period, whether you've always been a Christian, but you're trusting Jesus with your life, right? This is the moment of salvation. Not only are you trusting Jesus with your life, but you also have, we have this kind of baggage that we carry in our life, which is a thing we're going to talk about in a second, which is sin, right? Jesus, I'm trusting you with my life. I'm also trusting you with the baggage, with the burden, with the sin that I've carried, right? Paul says that the wages of sin is death. Right? I'm trusting with it, that you're saving me from um, the penalty of, of sin. I'm trusting that you're saving me from the power of sin. I'm trusting that you're saving me from the sin itself. So again, Sanders uses this. It's called like a circle or maybe ripples. But he talks about here this first one is salvation. Right? I'm trusting you, Jesus, that you have done that. So then Sanders would say it like this. He would say, well, how then, if we were to kind of think about salvation, if we're kind of circling out, how does Jesus accomplish salvation? 
right? And this is, this is kind of what he puts in that second circle, ripple, whatever, right? How does Jesus do this? How does his life, his death, his resurrection kind of transfer that life, that salvation, that, that um, eternal life into us? Because at some point during the life and death of, I guess we can go for the full, during the life and death of Jesus, he, he deliver us, delivers us from the sin predicament, right? He rescues us into new life. He is the son of God, right? He is the son of God who does this, which is our next, our next statement, right? How does he do it? And who must he be? We could say maybe down here. Right? Who must Jesus be? If he can do that, if he can stand between God and humanity and deliver us from that sort of sin predicament into new life, right? If he can do that, you know, one of the things that, that Sander said that I really liked about this is he said that, you know, as we think about Jesus kind of standing, right, in between humanity and God, right? Sander says, if we're serious about adding God to Jesus's name, then we must be serious about adding Jesus to God's name, right? Oftentimes we call it Jesus the Son of God, right? Jesus is the Son of God. But then at the same time, we have to be serious about adding Jesus to God's name, right? So we have salvation. How does Jesus do that through his death, um, his life, his death, his resurrection? Who must he be that he can stand between God and humanity. And then the last kind of thing that I would think too, and you'll see I'm kind of highlighting some of the word here, words here, is then we just kind of have this assurance. Right? We have this assurance in our spirit, from the spirit, that this change has taken place. Brian, when you gave your life to the Lord, maybe it wasn't like this you know, some people kind of have this, this momentary change. I don't know if, was it like that for you? Did you, or is it just kind of like, yeah, I'll go this way. I'm trying to think of like, was it a spiritual encounter? Was it? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like for me, again, there's, there's, there's been moments of spiritual encounter, but I don't know if I would always look to one and say that was it. But there is an, a general assurance in my spirit that this change has taken place. This isn't just a cosmic transaction that happens kind of beyond the star somewhere. And we just like, oh, I guess so. There is that, that real change that happens within us. When Paul talks about this to the Ephesians, he says, you know, you too have heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation. And because you believed in the one who is truth, right? And because you believed in the one who is Jesus, your, li- your lives are marked with his seal. This is none other than the Holy Spirit who is promised. So as we think about sin, or as we think about salvation, right? How does Jesus accomplish this salvation through his life, death, resurrection? What does that say about Jesus, about who he must be? At some level, he's got to be able to stand between God and humanity to do this. And then after we get saved, we do have this assurance via the Spirit. Does he see how that works? I don't know. The examples will just kind of be getting our minds thinking about the, the Trinity in these sorts of ways. 
Let's do one more, but I'm gonna, um, or I'm gonna do two more real quick, but what I wanna do is actually get a paper towel because I felt a little guilty that I used that guy's jacket, whoever he is, to wipe that. So give me one second and let me get a paper towel. Yeah, right, Johnny? Oh, you got one? It's yours now? <laughs> ah, that's perfect. Yep, that's it. Lifesavers. Okay, now let's move to the next one. So again, the idea, before I keep moving on, the idea is you take something in the scriptures, right? Again, whatever it might be, and then you just begin to program your mind to think, how do I, how do I consider this in light of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit? How is this doctrine, this passage, this person, this idea, this comment, underlined Father, Son, and Spirit. Again, consider the Trinity, the background, the context, the frequency for all that we do, all that we say, all that we are. It informs everything about us. So let's jump into the next one. And I want to talk about sin. I remember hearing this at one point. <laughs> Somebody said, is sin just an imaginary list of things to make me or us feel guilty about, right? And I remember thinking about that. It's like, man, you know, and, and people think like this. If I didn't have God, I'd have a lot less things to feel guilty about, right? Is it just an imaginary list of things to make us feel guilty about? Or is this an actual problem in the world, right? Is this an actual problem in my life? Okay, so we're going to start here with this kind of concept of sin. Um, I know that I've used this before, but I don't know if I've found a better concept, definition, understanding of sin than what Francis Spuford uses in his book, Unapologetic. And I know that I've used this before, so you've probably seen these letters before. Uh, Spuford, in his book, it's called Unapologetic, and he kind of shockingly, and it's a little bit vulgar as well, so forgive me for, for this, but I'm just... Spuford refers to it. Does anybody remember this? <laughs> Brian does. He refers to it as the human propensity to <clears throat> things up, right? And he, like, in his book, he, like, just spells it out, right? He's an English guy, and so he just kind of spells it out. Um, in his book, he calls it the human, and it's shocking, and it's vulgar, and it, in some senses, kind of, um, it kind of snaps us out of thinking the way that our normal modes of thinking about sin are just kind of like, oh, okay, nope, not a big deal, right? He calls it the human propensity to, maybe we should just use an M there, to mess things up, right? But he uses that word, again, to kind of shock us, to kind of bring us, snap us out of our just kind of, because oftentimes when we think about sin, right, we think that we're just, you know, we're just kind of passive agents of entropy, right? We just mess up on accident. We often think about our own sin, myself included, you know, I'm not that bad. Like, I know I made a couple mistakes. Like, you know, I've, don't, don't, I'm not perfect. But did you guys see that guy who, who was driving drunk and he killed that woman and dog? Now that's a bad person, right? 
and we 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 kind of minimize our own mistakes, right? And then we maximize other people's mistakes, and we just kind of really don't take the seriousness of our sin because we're so good at kind of downplaying that, right? So we think about sin as an actual problem in this world, as an actual problem in in my world as well, right? A couple examples that would really just to highlight for us. And I, I, I kind of went back and forth between myself and you so we can just be on the same page. I can be unfairly moody towards those I love. And you break promises and commitments out of personal convenience. And I walk away from relationships I care about over a minor slight. And you ignore and abuse your own well-being and others' well-being as people's as well. I treat humans as material objects disregarding the image of God that lies within them. You are apathetic and indifferent to suffering. And we will blame, excuse, and rationalize our major mistakes while we emphasize, villainize, and demonize others' minors' mistakes. When we think about sin, again, think about sin not as a synonym for how good a bowl of chocolate ice cream tastes, not as a marketing slogan for some naughty lingerie company, not as an accidental swear, you like that, right, Johnny? (laughs) Sorry. Not as an accidental swear word that just slips out of our mouth, right? Sin is the human propensity in this world to make a mess, to FTU, right? We have this propensity. I would say this, again, sin is a major problem in our world and in my world. Well, then we got to think about sin. We got to triple underline this. How do we consider sin in light of the Trinity, right? As we think about sin, Jesus comes onto the scene, right? And he claims to be the solution. John 129, Jesus is walking out to be baptized by John in the Jordan River. And John the Baptist says, looks at Jesus and he says, hey, look, that is the Lamb of God. This is the man who takes away the sin of the world. Imagine that statement being made about you. In Mark chapter 2, there's a great story where some friends bring to Jesus a paralyzed man, right? And they, the, the Bible says that because of the crowds, they could not get him to Jesus. So they dug a hole in the roof, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was laying on, right? So they make a hole in the roof. Here comes a paralyzed man down. There he is. Then Jesus, maybe, maybe the friends are still up on the roof, but Jesus says, hey, because of your faith, his sins are forgiven, right? Now, the teachers of the law are sitting there thinking to themselves. They say this. They say, why does this fellow talk like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? He's blaspheming. The Bible says immediately Jesus knew in his heart, what, what the, and Jesus knew in his spirit what they were thinking in their, in their hearts. And he says to them, he says, well, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Get up, take your mat and go home or your sins are forgiven. And then he says this, he says this, 
but that you may know that the Son of Man, which is a title Jesus would use for himself, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and walk, go home. The man takes his mat, picks up his mat, walks, walks out in full view of them all. They all praise God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. We understand that sin is a major problem. It is this human propensity. Right? It's a major problem. Jesus says, I got that. I can deal with that human propensity. Right? Then again, we ask the question as we, as we kind of circle out a little bit. We ask this question again. Um, what does that say about the nature or the relationship um, of Jesus to God? Right? What do we understand about that? How do we understand that Jesus could, could do this, right? Because as Jesus identifies himself as this solution, right? As he, as he does this, um, Jesus is able to kind of stand outside of human history, stand outside, right? If he is the one that can take away the sin of the world, at some level he's standing outside of the world, standing outside of the cosmos to be able to make that claim. Jesus... Um, let me, let me think about it like this with you guys. I'm thinking who has the nicest car in our church. Brian, you did have the nicest car when you had that Toyota Yaris, man. You still got it. Still got it. Brian and I are driving down the street, and uh, man, I hear this terrible noise coming from Brian's car. And I say to Brian, I say, Brian, I can fix that for you, right? No, for, I know, sermon's getting rough. Is that what's going on? or Man. Okay, I'll finish up soon. I know you're I know. I say, Brian, I can fix that for you, right? And for me to be able to fix that that part of your car, I need to get out of the car at some level and and have the knowledge, have the skill, and have the ability to do that, to fix that car. Right? When Jesus claims that he is the solution to the personal and to the cosmic sin, he's in essence in some level saying, I can get out of that car. And Jesus is the one who claims that he knows what needs to be fixed in our world. He has the knowledge to do it. He does it in his loving sacrifice on the cross. And then his resurrection, again, in some, in some senses, places him outside of this world. He says, I can do this. I can beat death itself, right? So Jesus claims um, to be this personal solution. And then it does change the nature again we we are confident adding jesus's name to god god's name to jesus we know that they're in a relationship together then we the the last part of this as we think about sin again as we think about the the healing the forgiveness the restoration we receive the gift of the holy spirit in return for our sin when peter preaches to to jerusalem um, jesus is ascended Peter goes up into he- uh, Jesus goes up into heaven, and Peter's given this great sermon as the Holy Spirit's coming down. And Peter says these words as he's as he's um, after his his sermon. Um, they hear his sermon, right? They were cut to the heart, and Peter uh, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, "Like, what are we going to do now? Now that we know that Jesus is the Messiah, Peter says to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus.'" Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what we're given in return for our sins 
is the power, the presence, the healing, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's do one more quick. I want to think about suffering. idea of suffering. Again, a real problem in our world. And I was thinking about suffering this, you know, this week as I was kind of considering the sermon um, and just kind of looking around. Oh, Johnny, what's going on over there, man? Okay. Sometimes you just get a little surprised when you look around the crowd. <laughs> I was just thinking about, you know, I was thinking about the church. I was thinking about the folks who come to the church. And, um, and just kind of knowing the individual stories of suffering in this church and kind of beyond, right? And whether that's um, some sort of physical ailment, mental ailment, uh, the loss of a family member, an act of betrayal, the loss of a job, a career, not only that. And then we think about the larger suffering that we've seen over the past. I mean, just we, we've seen the global pandemic. We've seen the natural disasters, the racial division, the sexual exploitation, unbridled greed and corruption. Again, a real problem. Some of the suffering is a result of the HPTFTU, right? Some of the suffering that we, we bring on ourselves as a result of it, some of it is just, is just a part of the sin cycle of this world. Big problem is suffering, right? And we understand this. Jesus, in some senses... He anticipates this, right? He anticipates pain and suffering. Jesus said in, in John 16, he says, in this unbelieving world, right, in this world that we live in, in this time that we live in, you will experience troubles and sorrows. Every person sitting in this room, myself included, has experienced trouble and sorrows. Jesus, just a little bit earlier in John 15 says, remember when the unbelieving world hates you, they first hated me, right? When the unbelieving world hates you, when it discredits you, when it brings you down, when it puts you, when it kicks you to the side, it hated, they first hated me. And then towards the end there in verse 20, so remember um, what I taught you, that a servant isn't superior to his master. And since they persecuted me, they will persecute you also, Jesus anticipated, he knew that we would experience in this world trouble, sorrow, pain, suffering, persecution, hatred. Okay, so Jesus, you knew about this, but then Jesus, you also had, that wasn't the last word on this because Jesus, from a perspective beyond human, understood suffering as ultimately redemptive, right? That there is an answer to every single tear, pain, suffering, persecution, hatred, that will all ultimately be redemptive. Again, John 16, 33, this remarkable, remarkable verse that Jesus claims. In this unbelieving world, you will experience trouble and sorrows, but you must be cre- uh, courageous for I have conquered 
the world. You must be courageous, for I have conquered the world. Again, think about being able to make that kind of a statement. And we're asking, what does that say in relationship to the nature of Jesus and God from a perspective beyond human, right? So now Jesus, beyond human, in a godlike perspective, in a godlike nature, to claim all suffering is redemptive. And then the last thing, too, is as we experience this suffering as ultimately redemptive, it is the Holy Spirit, right? Because we know. Because you and I know that no suffering that we experience, right, is ultimately the end, right? Because we know that, it's the Holy Spirit that enables us to embrace the suffering without turning bitter, right? I don't, and we've talked about this too. With, with the amount of suffering, to not have some sort of an eternal perspective that things will be undone, that things will be redeemed, that God will put all things right, that there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more suffering. It's the Holy Spirit that lives within us, that teaches us, that, that confirms us, that allows us to even embrace the suffering without turning bitter, but rather comforting. One of my favorite verses that Eugene Peterson translated in the message is 2 Corinthians 1. He says this, All praises belong to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Father of tender mercy and the God of endless comfort. He always comes alongside us to comfort us in every suffering so that we can come alongside those who are in any painful trial. We can bring them this same comfort that God has poured out upon us. And just as we experience the abundance of Christ's own sufferings, even more of God's comfort will cascade upon us through our union with Christ, right? Just as we've experienced suffering, we can then pour out that suffering. It is the Holy Spirit that allows us to, that enables us to, um, to embrace the suffering without turning bitter, but rather comforting. So the idea this morning, the idea, the big, the big thought, and maybe there was something else that the Holy Spirit spoke to you, but the big thought is here, you fill in, you kind of fill in the blank, right? You start with wherever you want to start, sin, suffering, um, salvation, oh, atonement, the gospel of John, Peter's life. Um, where you kind of start wherever you want. You fill in the blank. And then you just kind of begin circling out. You begin kind of rippling out. Okay, how do I see? And, and by the way, it's not that you have to do Jesus number one, God number two, and then the Holy Spirit number three. But you just begin to think like, okay, how do I understand the Holy Spirit in suffering? Where do I see God in that? Um, what about Jesus on the cross, Right? Or, you know, suffering with, you know, you can start here with God and then you can move to the Holy Spirit and you could move to Jesus over here. It doesn't matter, but the idea, the, the, the kind of concept that I want you to, to, to begin understanding and thinking about this morning is whatever it is, 
we, we triple underline it, we think about it kind of growing larger in the sense of the Trinity. I think that should be enough for today. Let me say a word of prayer. Father, I'm trusting that these folks have received a word from you this morning. And kind of in the midst of all my words, that they've received a word from you that will lead them deeper into the heart of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, would draw them closer to that table, into that fellowship. Thank you, Lord. Help us to turn our minds towards you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, with the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Yeah, so the first four teachings on the Trinity, as we move through this, maybe which one stood out to you the most? Uh, how does the circles, um, the kind of ripples analogy help challenge and push our thinking toward that of the Trinity? Uh, salvation, sin, or suffering, which ripple was most profound in light of the Trinity? Which one would you probably want to talk about or consider more? And then, you know, that, that verse from Ephesians, I, I really wish I would have spent a little bit more time there, but, you know, share reflection from this verse. Because you too have heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation, and because you believed in the one who is truth, your lives are marked with this seal. This is none other than the Holy Spirit who was promised. So just take a few minutes on those, on those questions.